Good morning again. So glad that you've come to church today and we get to dive into God's Word a little bit this morning. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. We're so glad that you've, uh, you're tuning in at this particular moment too. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We take on the next story in our series, Echoes of Promise, by looking at this full chapter today. It was June 23, 2018, not long ago, just a few years, when 12 wild boars got stuck in a cave. Now, these wild boar, boars were 12- and 13-year-old boys playing on a soccer team in Thailand, and these 12 boys and their coach, after practice, decided that they wanted to explore this cave that they commonly would run through. But they didn't know that a monsoon rainstorm was going to be happening while they were inside. They didn't realize the danger uh, uh, that they were entering into until suddenly the water began to seep in and rise and they realized they had no way out. This team of boys, the wild boars, end up sp ended up spending 15 days inside this cave and for 15 days, the attention of the world was tuned to this particular part of northern Thailand. For 15 days, an international rescue effort unfolded. And do you remember this story at all? Do you remember when this was happening? I, I was oftentimes thinking, I don't think they'll ever get them out. And my heart was so concerned for them. And I was so every day, every moment, what's the update? What's happening next? It seemed like it was going to be impossible to reach them once they even found where they were. And yet, against all odds, they were brought to safety. And, and to be able to bring them to safety, it took this. It took 100 divers, professional divers, 
reaching out to them. It took 2,000 soldiers. It took 10 police helicopters. It took 700 tanks of oxygen, and it cost two of the lives of the rescuers. There's something about a dramatic rescue attempt that grips us. And I think it's because we can place ourselves in their situation and feel the sense of hopelessness. We can look at these pictures and sense, wait a second, if, if that was me stuck in the cave, what would I be hoping for? If that was my kids stuck in the cave, I would want somebody to risk everything to go get them. I think we're gripped by rescue stories because we see the best of humanity appear at that moment. We see courage on display and creativity. We see risk-taking and urgency and sacrifice and love. And as we see these stories like this unfold, kind of everything else begins to fade away. We begin to realize what's really important in life. These lives We're being rescued at immense cost, and that is good. You know, the Bible is a story of amazing rescue. It's a story of a God who protects, and for those who are in captivity, he comes, and with great effort and expense on his part, he he rescues those in captivity. And so today, as we open God's Word together, we're going to see among the story of the whole Bible, which is a story of rescue, one of the first stories, one of the first small stories of rescue, and in that, we're going to hear the echoes of protection. Because in this story, we're going to find out that God is a God who loves to protect His people. He loves to rescue those who are in bondage and captivity. And we can hear those echoes even today. Do you need to be rescued from anything? Is there anything right now where you feel like you're trapped, like you're in a cave and you can't get out? There's no possible way in your effort that this is going to actually result in something, some sort of salvation. What if you were assured that you had a rescuer in that situation? This story today, Genesis 14, is going to help us see that. But you remember, Genesis 14, is we're picking up the story kind of partway through. The story actually began long ago when the world was full of sin again, and instead of destroying the world with a flood, God chose a man to make into a nation. God calls Abram from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, this pagan, moon-worshiping city. There's nothing about Abraham that that would cause God to choose him other than that God just chose. And he chooses Abraham, a moon-worshiping pagan, and says to him, what did he say? Do you remember? Do you remember the promise in Genesis 12? Leave your what? Leave your country, your family, very good, and your father in particular. And does Abraham believe? Do you remember? Does Abraham believe? Does he do what God tells him? Eh, kind of, halfway, wasn't really full belief, like don't be like Abraham, right? We we understand that, that that Abraham, he kind of halfway believes. He does leave Ur. He goes with his father and his kindred, which he wasn't supposed to bring, and they end up up in Haran for a while until his father dies. And then he continues on his journeys 
to the place that God will show him, and he brings him, him down into the land of Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, God appears to him and it says, this is the land. This is the land that I am showing you. And what does Abraham do then? He worships. He worships the Lord, and he pitches his tent between Bethel and Ai. But not long, not much time passes, and a famine occurs. It was a great famine. You remember this? And so Abraham trusted God and stayed right where God told him to, right? Is that how the story goes? Say, come on, preacher, that's not how it goes. Somebody say it. Just say it, would you? That's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. Abram, in the midst of this famine, even though he was told this is where you're supposed to go, he goes to Egypt. And going to Egypt, he realizes is going to be a dangerous thing for him and his family, and so he decides to protect his wife. You want to say it again? That's not how it goes, preacher. No, no. He, he does not risk his wife for, life for his wife as he should have. He, he tries to save his own skin. And so he performs what Pastor Jerry called Operation Sister Act. Hey, just tell him you're my sister, which again was kind of a half-truth. But in all of that, we see here that Abram is stumbling significantly at this point. But God, the best two words that happen in the Bible whenever they occur. But God, but God is the protector and he rescues Sarai and Abram here. He puts plagues on them. Pharaoh realizes that, he's the, that he has Abram's wife and so he says, what have you done? And he gives him all sorts of stuff. He gives them all sorts of wealth. All those four-legged Bentleys and four-legged Lambos that Pastor Jerry talked about, right? The camels and the donkeys and all of that, right? He gets loaded down with weighty amounts of stuff and told leave. And so he goes back and he pitches his tent in the spot that he had the first time in Canaan. They have so much stuff with them that we saw last week in chapter 13 that it becomes a problem because Lot got all sorts of stuff that while he was in Egypt leaving as well. And so they're heavy with stuff they're weighty in riches, and there begins to be a conflict between these two men's workmen, the cattlemen, the sheep herders at that point. And so they decide to separate, and Abram, the man of promise, the one who says, this is, who could have said, this is my land, says, you choose. Magnanimously, allowing Lot to make the choice, and Lot chooses the seemingly good land. He chooses the land that seems to be the one that will give him the most ease and the most profit, and it seems like the best choice, except we hear that he settled near Sodom, which was a wicked city. Which brings us to this story today. What happens when Lot settles near Sodom? What happens to Lot and his people, and how does Abram interact if you take notes, I would encourage you to write down this phrase today. It will be the driving phrase that will help us understand this story. It's simply this. Alliance with wickedness puts you in peril, but allegiance to the Most High God secures your protection. So what does alliance with wickedness do? It puts you where? In peril. But allegiance to the Most High God does what? It secures protection. That's what we're going to see here in this amazing story of God's rescue, this echo of, of protection that we're going to see here today. Now, this story has three scenes, 
And in each of the scenes, there, there, there's, there's one main point, this point that allegiance with wickedness puts you in peril, but alliance with the Most High God secures your protection. That's the point of all three scenes is to show us that. But I'm going to unpack each of these scenes, and we're going to look at them, and then we're going to make a point from them, and then think a little bit about what does that mean for us today. So scene number one, Point number one is simply part of the statement that we already said, write this down, alliance with wickedness puts me, me, this, this is about us too, right? It puts me in peril. We see scene one in, v- in the first 12 verses of this chapter. Would you just look for a moment at verses one, two, and three? Do, put your eyes on whatever copy of God's word you have and, and, and look at where we're going here today. It, it says, in the days of, and then you just kind of read for a moment because I don't want to have to say all those names. I mean, look at all these weird names, weird names of people, weird names of places. Like, like this is one of the boring parts of the Bible, it would seem, and yet there's so much in this text that we get to unpack here today. Notice in verse 2, it says that these kings... The, the kings listed in verse 1 made war with a, a, another set of kings, another coalition of kings. We see here the first time in the Bible that war is mentioned. Now, I believe there's probably other times that war happened, but the first instance of this begins to happen. And notice in verse 3, it says, all of these join forces in the Valley of Siddam. Where is the Valley of Siddam? Anybody? Where? It tells us, the Bible tells us, it, it, it's by the Salt Sea. It's by the Salt Sea. And this is important because you remember that this story, while it's very much for us today, it was written to an original audience who were were the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, out of hundreds of years of slavery. They've wandered in the desert for 400 years, and they're finally now getting set up to enter the land. And what would they have just walked past? Take a deep breath. You smell the salt? You smell the beach right now? Just kind of imagine it. Take a deep, everybody breathe in. Do you smell the salt? The the salt sea is this place we now know it as the Dead Sea because nothing lives there because there's so much salt. It's at the lowest place in earth, and this salt sea is the scene where the Israelites would have been reading this and the original audience would have been like, we still smell it, we're so close to it. We know exactly where this valley is. And at this valley, we see here that there is a smackdown that takes place. The four kings listed in verse 1 attack the five kings listed in verse 2, and it tells us in verses 4 to 7 why that happened. We see in these verses that for 12 years, the five kings of Sodom had been paying tribute to this other coalition of four kings from the east. I brought a map here to help us understand. Wrong map, previous map. Sorry, I turned around. There we go. The kings from the east. We know the location of two of them. Shinar is Babylon. Elam, we know exactly where it is. The other two kings, not sure exactly. But the point is, these historical figures, these characters from history have come to attack these five kings because they've stopped paying tribute to them. And so it says in the 13th year, they, they rebelled. And the 14th year, uh, we need a name because I can't say all these names, all right? But, but let's look for a second in verse four. What do we see here? We see 12 years they had served. All right, you try to say the name. Go ahead right now. Try to say it. Go. Okay. 
can I just help us a little bit? And when I read that name, I'm like, he wants more cheddar. <laughs> cheddar Lamour. Ah, all right, so let's call him King Cheddar from here on out, okay? King Cheddar here is on the scene, and, and he's come down through Israel. Next map, we've seen him come down from the top here. This is the green line on the right that we see. He stops up at Rephium. That's where the giants of the land live. So he takes out the biggest threat first. And then he goes through, and he takes out a whole bunch of other people, loops back around to the Valley of Siddim. That's where the scene be- picks up, where we see the scene pick up in verse 8. The king of Sodom and his coalition joined in battle in the Valley of Siddim against King Cheddar and his coalition. It was four kings against five. Who's going to win? Four against five, four against five. Who should win? The five, but they don't. <laughs> Look at this. It says in the Valley of Siddim, verse 10, it was full of bitumen pits, that's tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled because they're being routed. They're losing here. And these four kings are whooping up on these five kings. By the way, how many kings does that make? How many kings? Oh, yeah. Okay. So nine kings. Quick fact, and we're going to come back to it later. The most repeated word in this story is king. 28 times. Hold that for a second. We're going to come back to it. But we see nine, four, nine kings interacting in battle here. The five kings are losing. They're being routed. They're, they're stuck in tar pits. They run into the hills. And the result is, in verse 11, that King Cheddar and his co- coalition takes all the stuff. He takes all the He wins. He gets all the stuff. Now, you might be thinking, why do we have this history lesson? I, for one, love history. So for me, it's kind of fun to dig through and look at all the history. Anybody like history here? Anybody history? Okay, yeah, awesome. History's cool. History's fun. Why is it in the Bible? Why, why do we get history in the Bible? Why do we get 11 verses of setup? And, and, and by the way, it seems like a long setup to figure out all these names and kings and, and, and why the history lesson? I think for a couple of reasons. One, we see that nations are, exist at this time period that they've been scattered from Babel and, and they've set up little empires and little kingdoms and, and these nations exist and, and the, these world events that are going on or coalitions have been formed and, and geopolitical systems are in play here and, and that's all the first 11 verses are trying to help us with but then it focuses. It all comes into focus and the focus narrows in on verse 12. Look at it with me. Verse 12 says, they, King Cheddar, also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they, King Cheddar, went on their way. The focus of the world events narrows to the man of promise, Abram, and it shows us that his nephew Lot, who was dwelling in Sodom, has been taken as pillage in this war. There's no wasted words in this verse because the verse is trying to bring us into focus to say this world event has significant implications for the man of promise that we've been studying. And in this, can I encourage you to read this story not the way we normally do? (laughs) Say, okay, pastor, what do you think the way I normally read the story is? Well, we normally read the Bible stories and we look at the story and we think that the main character is whatever it is, in this case, Abram. But Pastor Jerry's taught you well, right? The main character of the story is not Abram. Who is it? Say it. It's God. God's the main story, main character. 
We're going to continue to see how God uses this protagonist in the story, Abram, and, and against kind of this minor figure in the story as a whole, this, this nephew of his named Lot. But, but can I just encourage you, don't read past this and think, I'm kind of more like Abram. Because the reality is the story is being told to help us understand we're actually a lot more like Lot in this story. And what do we see is really going on in this geopolitical event that's happening? It, 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 well, when it focuses on, on Lot, it comes to this. This is the point of this particular scene. The scene point is this. Lot is bearing the consequence of squandering, sorry, squandering God's protection. That might be something you want to write down if you're a note taker. Lot is bearing the consequences of squandering God's protection. We see here that this verse focuses in on Lot, and it tells us who he is and the importance of the relationship. He says here that he's the son of Abram's brother. Lot is Abram's nephew. So the man of promise nephew is in peril here. He's in danger. And then we see that, that while we understand that the promise was given to Abram, Lot had received the benefit of that promise as he stuck close to Abram all along. But now we see that, a that Lot has separated from Abram. He's moved away from the man of promise, and there's consequences for doing that. Actually, the verse gets very specific about what these why these consequences are taking place. Look at the next phrase in verse 12. It says this. It says that he was dwelling in Sodom. Now, this is a change from the previous story in chapter 11. And this is intended to be noticed. We saw last in, in Genesis 13, verse 12, it says that Abram settled the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Listen, he was living outside of the city of Sodom when he first made the choice. But now we see he's actually in Sodom. And you remember what Sodom is? You, the description of Sodom? You remember? Next verse, chapter 13, verse 3. What is Sodom? Sodom is a wicked, say it, wicked place. How wicked? Very wicked. It's the same word that Moses used when he said that Abram was very rich and the famine was very intense. It's this immense amount of wickedness that's going on in Sodom. And notice Lot, he over here, he said, I want to go to Sodom, but I'll just kind of, it'll be okay if I'm just kind of outside of the place of wickedness. But how quickly was he now suddenly in the place of wickedness? Lot is bearing the consequences of squandering God's protection. When he was with Abram, he was protected. But now he's made a choice. And the choice was to go near something that was wicked, and then he got sucked into it very quickly. And suddenly we see here that he's dwelling. Dwelling means to be settled and to inhabit. He's not intense outside of the city anymore. He's settled in the place of wickedness. which maybe shouldn't surprise us a ton because we've seen Lot's character somewhat revealed before. When he was dragging his feet out of Egypt, he wanted to stay in the place where the land was rich. And then when he got this choice, 
he makes uh, what seems like the best choice, but is actually the worst choice. It seemed good because it seemed the material benefit and all the shiny stuff he was going to get because he was in the good watered land, which was like, by the way, by Egypt. It was like Egypt. And that's what Lot's chose, chosen to do. He's chosen to move away from protection. Why? Because he wants possessions. Because he wants more stuff. And yet, what did that choice result in? It resulted in a coalition of kings who came from the east, conquered the city that he was in that was supposed to give him all that material possession, and now he's being taken away. He's being marched as a captive north, being taken away further and further from protection. I mean, think for a second what Lot is thinking at this moment. Did he come to his senses? Did he realize, oh no, I've really messed up. Did, did, did he have any sense of, as he's being marched into a captivity and all of his stuff being taken away, his daughter's likely going to be married off to some foreigner, his family ripped apart, enslaved for the rest of however many days he's going to be able to survive how horrible this experience is. Do you see how bad it is for Lot here at this moment? Second Peter talks a little bit about Lot, and we're going to hear more of this in the coming days, but it says, that, says this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, does that a speed bump for you? Peter says that Lot is righteous, but notice... He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked for that righteous man lived among them day after day and he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Listen, he moved away from protection and he's tormented. He's tormented by how ugly things have gotten and how bad things are. All of Lot's hopes are dead What does this mean for us today? Well, it means this. Dwelling in sin puts me in peril. Dwelling in sin puts me in peril. I can't tell you how all the nuances of the world events fit into God's sovereign plan in this story, but I can tell you what I know that the Bible reveals about God, and it's this. God hates sin. He's holy. And he can't tolerate it. And it irritates him. More than irritates him, he hates it. And so he judges sin. He tells us, for the wages of sin is death. Listen, that shiny thing that entices you and says, is it okay to be a little bit near it? The wages that you earn when you pitch your tent near the wickedness and then slide and dwell in that wickedness, the wages of sin is death is what the Bible teaches. And now we see the seriousness of Lot's choice. Lot earns peril, not protection. How do you think God feels about that? Well, thankfully, 
Psalm 81 helps us understand perhaps a little bit about how he feels specifically in this situation. For sure, in a similar situation down the road when all of the nation of Israel was doing somewhat the same thing, and how he feels about you and I when we are tempted to squander protection as well. And in Psalm 81, verse 10, it goes like this. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He's saying, man, imagine if Lot had heard these words. I brought you out of Egypt. I protected you from that place that you thought was so good. But don't worry, trust me because just open your mouth. I'm going to give you everything you need. You didn't lose anything in that. Go on in verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Lot didn't listen, right? Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Man, is this not the picture of Lot to a T? What do you want to choose? What do you want to choose? What do you want to choose? He never prays. He never gets counsel. He just takes, I'll take the nice shiny land. Thank you. How's God feel about that? Continue. Verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. It grieves God's heart when we're walking in wickedness. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. To those who hate the Lord, they would cringe towards him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, with the honey from the rock that I would satisfy you. God is sitting here and he's saying, listen, when you squander my protection, yes, that's a, the wages of that is death, but listen, oh, if you would turn back to me, oh, if you would submit to me, oh, I would provide everything that you need that you were chasing after in a righteous way. That's God's heart to all of this. So let me ask you a question this morning. Where are you setting up your tents? Where are you dwelling Are you like the description in Psalm 1, walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers? If so, do not expect God's protection. Where are you setting up your tents? Would you allow the Spirit of God maybe to even bring some clarity to you right now, right where you sit? Would you just ask the Lord, God, would you show me, is there any way in which I am setting up tents next to wickedness? And would you show me, because my heart's deceitful and I, I can't even discern its own motives, and so would you show me? Would you show me where I'm setting up my tents? Holy Spirit, would you diagnose my heart and my motives and my desires and my loves? By the way, in asking you to do this exercise, can I just assure you this? I am not concerned with your outward appearance. I am not concerned with your performance and what you show everybody that you are. I want to know what's the Holy Spirit think about your heart and where your heart is pitching its tent. Where is your heart dwelling? Maybe to help diagnose that further, you can answer some other questions quietly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Answer this. What do you dream of? Like, what's your dream? What do you long for and what do you wish? 
that you don't tell anybody about? What is that pointing to as your hope for protection? Moreover, what do your thoughts linger on? Are you pitching your tents near anything that is sexually immoral? If you could, would you move in and dwell at a place where you had every material possession your heart could ever desire? Have you set up an idol of control? And that's really what is protecting you. Or maybe it's simply the approval of others. Man, I would move close to that if somebody would just compliment me over and over and over. Where is your heart dwelling? What is it becoming captive to? For this simple truism exists. What you're tempted to draw near to today is where your heart will live tomorrow. What you're tempted to draw near to today, it's where your heart will dwell tomorrow. Remember, Lot had a choice. And led by his desires, with no prayer or spiritual counsel at all, he took what he wanted, first by moving near it and then by moving into it. But an alliance with evil leads to peril. Thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The Bible is an amazing story of rescue. It's a story of protection. We're hearing the echoes of them. And so write this down before we even see it in scene number two. But write this down. God is gracious even if I'm squandering his protection. Whoa. You mean if I'm in peril because I've squandered his protection that he'll be gracious to me? Is that for real? Is that how God really works? Well, let's see the story. We pick up in verse 13 and we see here that news of the battle has been told to Abram. Somebody who escaped, it says, told Abram the Hebrew. First time ever in the Bible we see this term Hebrew. First time ever because we see the geopolitical systems going on and nations are coming to attack and we see for the first time the term that was used by outsiders about Israelites when they described the nation of Israel, they described them as Hebrews. And so as we're seeing the beginning of the promise begin to happen here in this verse, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's being recognized in a national sense by saying that he was Hebrew. He's living about 20 miles away, and it says here in verse 13 that he has allies. Now, he hears this news, and in verse 14, he says he draws out his sword. That's actually the imagery of the Hebrew here. He draws out, notice how it's said here, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth, he drew out his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. What? You could get this picture when you hear the first couple chapters of Abram's story that he's, you know, he's kind of alone. Maybe he has a small group of people who are kind of traveling with him, but don't be mistaken. 
He has enough people with him, probably thousands that are part of his household, that there's 318 fighting men who are available to get on the warpath here. And so Abram, it says here that he grabs, the, he grabs his 318 men and he pursues up to the northern boundary of the land of Canaan, this town called Dan. Verse 15, he divides his forces against them by night, so it's a sneak attack. And then he and his servants, so he's there, he's involved, he's putting his neck on the line, he's the one that's actually swinging the sword there as well. It says he and his servants, they defeat King Cheddar and his coalition. And he pursues them to Hobah, north of D Damascus. He chases them out of the land of promise. He chases them far north of that after the defeat. And what we see here is that Abram is now General Abram. You could title him in that. He's leading a military uh, tactic here. He divides his forces, and under the cover of night, a much smaller force defeats a much, much larger force. We don't know exactly how many, but think of the story of Gideon and his 300 men and the hundreds of thousands that were defeated there. And what you see here is that Abram receives the protection of God, the main character, in this battle, God's his protector, and there's victory that happens. Notice what happens in verse 16. Abram brought back all the possessions, and he brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He won. Woo! Anybody? He won. It, it would kind of be like, I, you need to be in the story here for a little bit. You're, you're starting to doze off, and we need to get you involved. And so uh, it was kind of like when World War II ended in England, and Churchill writes and tells us what happened all weekend that first weekend. What would happen is eight words were used to celebrate the victory. We're going to reenact this right now. The words were, who won the war? And then they responded, we won the war. And people would say this all on the streets. They would chant it in crowds. And so just kind of cut this right in half here. You guys over here say, who won the war? Say it. Who won the war? We won the war. Who won the war? We won the war. Who won the war? We won the war. Abram is victorious. Who won the war? We won the war. 318 of us have no right beating up on King Cheddar and his coalition. But it happened. We won. It's victory. And Abram here not only is General Abraham, but notice, notice, notice how many kings have been defeated at this point in the story. All of them. All of them. And who's king of the hill? Abram. Abram is king of the hill. He is the one that has defeated all of these other kings. He is almost king-like, but it's fascinating. We're never told he's a king. He's not a king. He's never given that title. But what we find here is he is a father. He is a father. Notice what motivated Abram to go to battle it said it all the way up in verse 10, or I'm sorry, in verse 14, when Abram heard that his kinsman, his nephew, listen, while he's king of the hill, he's actually acting like a gracious father. Gracious because Lot doesn't deserve any of this. Natural consequences are taking place. Abram could have been like, forget him. He made his choice. Let it all happen to him. But that's not what it is. He's motivated because he's his kinsman. He sees here, uh, I'm, I'm going to act now like a father in this way. And the point is this. 
The point of the passage is this, write this down. God is gracious even if I am squandering his protection. Do you see it? Lot is squandering the protection and God is gracious and sends Abram to go protect him. So let me ask you a question, a little Bible trivia knowledge here today. Check your Bible knowledge for a second. What is the most repeated phrase about God in the Old Testament? Do you know it? The most repeated statement about God. You want to know who God is? Do you know what, want to know what God is like? Then there's a statement that is actually said over and over and over in the Word of God. It's this. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the most repeated description of the God of the Bible, right there. 27 times in the Old Testament, this is what God is described like. What have you thought about God? And has it matched up to this? Do you see here that there is this gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that he forgives? When you mess up, when you're squandering God's protection, is this what you're thinking about God? Not normally. I know the answer. Because I know my heart as much as I can imagine what's going on in your heart. That's not normally what we think. I had a friend when I was a pastor of a little church in Chicago. His name was Raymond. We lived in the same little townhouse complex and he was well into his 80s. Raymond was a very lonely man and I began to befriend him, me and my family, and we, we began to interact with him. I would shovel snow off his car and sweep his sidewalks and, and visit with him. He was very lonely. My wife would often wonder, um, have you taken up chain smoking after I hung out at Raymond's house? I had not. <laughs> One day I asked Raymond, hey, could you join my family and come to the Thanksgiving dinner at our church that we're hosting and putting on? And he said, yes, (laughs) I couldn't believe it. And so Raymond came to us to Thanksgiving dinner in the church basement. It was small, there might've been a hundred of us. We had dinner together, it was great. As we walked out, I asked Raymond, Raymond, would you come to church with me this Sunday? said no. He said no every time. Because he thought that he had done so many bad things in life that God could never love him. He'd say, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. If you only knew everything, if I told you everything, you wouldn't be my friend, and I know God wouldn't. And it's a lie of the devil. That's a lie of the devil because our God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he forgives iniquity. He wants to rescue you and protect you from yourself and whatever you've done in life that has squandered his protection. This is our God. This is the God of of Abram. This is the God of this story. This is why God protects Abram and sends him out to rescue Lot. 
and this is so good because captives don't free themselves. You get that, right? When you're in captivity, you can't free yourself. Reminds me of the story of that cave rescue in Thailand of the 12 boys and their coach. They were over a mile and a half deep into the cavern. There were multiple places where the cave was so flooded that they couldn't walk through it anymore. That's why there were 100 scuba divers, professionals on the scene, Navy SEALs, the best of the best who know how to go underwater, were there to try to help the captives out of the cave. The rescuers realized if we were to take these boys and hook them up to oxygen tanks and get them to swim through, it's so technical and it's so claustrophobic, they would panic and die more than likely if we did this. So they came up with a plan. They took an anesthesiologist and they brought him back to the boys and then they drugged the boys and they put them to sleep. And for the three hour journey it took each of these boys to be dragged through by the scuba divers, they were in a bag attached to oxygen, completely knocked out, and they didn't contribute one thing to their rescue. And that's our story too. That's all right, you can cheer. Do you see why it's wrong to think that you've done something that God can't overcome? You don't contribute anything to your rescue. It's all God who does it. That's why Ephesians tells us that by grace you're saved through faith, and this is not your own doing so that anybody could boast. You aren't saved. Nobody's ever been saved because they've contributed in some way to their salvation. It has always been like the boys in the caves. God has come in, knocked you out, dragged you out of that cave, and brought salvation to you with no effort of your own. That's grace. When we use the word grace at church, I want you to think of the pictures of the boy in the cave being dragged out with no effort of his own. Grace is being given the gift you don't deserve and you haven't earned. Grace, in the salvation standpoint, is Jesus saying, you don't contribute anything, but I'm going to rescue you anyway. You were squandering and offending me in massive ways. You were my enemies, but I, by grace, I'm going to save you out of that through the blood of Jesus Christ who pays your price. Do you believe that? Have you believed that? It's possible for the first time today you're getting an understanding of grace. And how would you respond to that? How would you respond to grace in that way? Would you believe by faith that God graciously rescues those, even the worst of the squanderers, of his protection? If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, today's the day. Today is the day. He's calling you. He's drawing you. He's using his word right now as an anesthesia in you to help you understand you don't do anything for yourself. And he's rescuing you in that. It's possible you've come to church all your life and you've heard all sorts of religious things, but you've never heard that. Or if you did, you didn't believe it. You believed the lie of the devil and said, if you only knew how bad I was. And it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Our gracious God rescues those, even those who have squandered his protection. Now, one quick thing. Notice how the protection, notice how the protection it happens in this story. Notice 
God, the protector, uses his people who have been rescued by grace to rescue others. God uses Abram, who has been rescued by grace, to rescue his nephew, Lot. And that means some things for us today. Let me ask it in the form of a question first. How does seeing that God is gracious, even if you squander his protection, how does that motivate you? (laughs) It should motivate you first and foremost to receive by faith his grace. But secondly, it should also motivate you to see, hey, in the year of living sent, uh, now I get it, now I understand. God uses people who have been rescued by grace to go rescue others with grace. That's why we're living sent. That's why it is an opportunity for me to witness to my friends and neighbors and family. That's what causes me to live sent. By God's grace, we can understand grace like Abram did and motivated out of love for others, be used in the rescue of people like Lot. Many times, though, we are afraid. We are afraid to actually be on that rescue mission. It's dangerous. It's risk-taking. I have to stick my neck out. There's going to be consequences if I do that. which means you need to understand more about God's grace. How do you understand God's grace? First and foremost, look at your own sin, which nobody likes to do. And nobody, listen, it's hard for me to even say that. And you're sitting there, well, pastor, I don't want to look at my sin. That's ugly and gross. And I want to see beautiful things. Yeah, you will. You will just, but you first have to look at the ugly things. Look at your sin. How are you squandering God's provision in your life right now? And then, the great, like the great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShaney, do this. For every one look at sin, take ten looks at the cross. That's where you'll find the beauty. That's where you'll find the grace. Yes, look at your sin, but don't just stop at the sin and beat yourself up and say, oh, I'm such a horrible person. Look at Christ. Look at what he did on the cross. Look and see the blood shed for you. Look and see, yeah, I don't contribute anything to it, and that's what makes it so beautiful because he gives this free gift to me, and so now I'm motivated to understand grace for myself and help others see it as well. Abraham was motivated by God when someone he loved was taken captive. And that's so instructive to me as he acts like a father of grace here. It helps me understand I need to grow in love. I need to grow in love. But it also asks me to ask a question. Why could Abram take that risk? I mean, I I think his wife was probably asking this question. Really? You went after our nephew and you wouldn't stick your neck out for me in Egypt? Come on, buddy. What's going on here? But we're seeing something. We're seeing Abram change and be different. He believed something different here in this story than he did back in Egypt. What was it that he believed? It's simply this. Write this down. Point number three. God is the protector. God is the protector. We see this unfold as the third scene becomes into play here. In verse 17, after Abram's return from beating up on King Cheddar and his coalition, we see that the king of Sodom, tail between legs, comes walking out to meet him in a valley. Different valley, notice in verse 17, the valley of Shava. Where's the valley of Shava? 
What's the Bible say? Oh, it's the King's Valley, but you're like, I don't know where the King's Valley is either. That's okay. Don't worry. We're going to get clarity because surprise, surprise, the King of Sodom is there. Abram's there. We think there's going to be some sort of interaction between those two, but suddenly a third character appears. And look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, King of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him. This is a little twist in the story. We think Abram and king of Sodom are going to have this conversation, but instead we have a new character appear on the scene. It's Melchizedek, and he brings refreshment. We hear he's a priest, and he says a blessing. Now, we have to pause in the story for a moment because Melchizedek is a mysterious character in the Bible. And many, many people have wondered who is this individual because of the incredible uh, story that's unfolding before us even right now. Some people think, well, it's Shem. It's not Shem. Some people think it's a theophany, which means it's the appearance of God and the Father himself. Others think it's a Christophany. It's the appearance of Jesus himself. Others think it's an angel. Lots of debate, lots of debate, and no solution. However, Hebrews chapter 7 helps us begin to understand this a little bit further when it says this. Sorry about that. Hebrews 7 Verses 1 to 3, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Do you see how mysterious this figure is? And can I tell you something? Who he is isn't answered in the Bible. You've got to hold that intention, but it gives us great clarity about who he represents. Finish verse 3. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. We don't know exactly who the character is, but we know what he resembles. And the reason that he's in the story, the reason that he appears is because he resembles Jesus Christ. That makes sense when you look at the story and you see uh, he's a king and he's a priest, first occurrence ever of a priest in the Bible before the Levitical system. He's a priest and then he gives a blessing. He's a prophet. King, priest, prophet. Hmm. Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophet, priest, and king. This is who he's resembling, whoever the historical figure is. The important thing isn't who he, he, who he was, it's what he represents. He represents Jesus Christ. And notice the blessing that he gives. He blessed and said, blessed be Abram by the God most high, El Elyon, possessor or creator of the earth. And not only bless Abram, but blessed be the God most high, El Elyon, and who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek shows up, offers a meal to the, to the armies, and then acts like Jesus Christ and gives this blessing to Abram. And notice Abram's response. Look at the end of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, which means, a tenth means from the top of the heap. Of all the possessions that he recaptured, he gave from the top of the heap, every, the best of the, what he had, the top 10%, he gave to Melchizedek because he recognizes this figure is superior to me. And so he worships by giving a tithe. 
The story goes on back in, the, in Genesis 14, and we see that then the king of Sodom does actually begin to come onto the scene here, and he says to Abram, give me, give me. Notice the difference from the king, other king, from Melchizedek, King Melchizedek. King Melchizedek comes out, and he offers him something. The king of Sodom comes out, and it's like, it's all about me, but dude, come on, give me which isn't true because Abram just captured everything. It's rightfully his. It's no longer the king of Sodom's, but the king of Sodom's like, give me something. Notice what he says he wants. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Could this not possibly be a demonic expression? I don't want the stuff. Just give me the people. Hand it over. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, nope, nope, reject, nope. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord most high. I've taken an oath. I tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. To the Lord, Yahweh, personal name for God, El Elyon, God most high. And, and I've made this oath that I would not take even the smallest bit from you, a thread or a strap of a sandal or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'm going to take nothing, give the boys the food to eat, give my allies what they rightfully deserve, because technically all of it's mine anyway. You shouldn't be here demanding anything. We see such a contrast here, and the point is this. The story is trying to teach us, trust the source, not the stuff. Trust the source, not the stuff. This contrast here, the king of Melchizedek is telling us, blessed be the source of your protection, Abram. And that's why you're blessed. Where we see in the king of Sodom, uh, just stuff. Stuff. He offers nothing and makes demands. And Abram's response is to worship the God of Melchizedek, and to reject any sort of alliance with the king of Sodom. Why could Abram do that? Because he trusted the protector, not possessions. He trusted the protector, not possessions. I have a question for you today. Why, why, why do you tithe? Why do you give 10% of what you have and what you earn to the Lord? Now, in asking the question, you could be confused and think that I want to know about your money, and I don't, okay? I'm not concerned one bit for your money. That's not what I'm concerned about. That's why the question was asked the way it is. I didn't ask, what do you tithe? I asked, why? because I'm concerned for your heart, because I want the word of God in this story to disciple your heart. Why do you tithe? The biblical answer is we tithe because we trust the source, not the stuff. 10 minus one is not nine. Spiritually speaking, 10 minus one is more because we're demonstrating we trust the source. He's our protector. And in the world that we live in today, in the country that we live in today, the most common idol that we believe for security is stuff. Listen, you feel most secure when your savings account has more, not less. 
Again, I can diagnose your heart because I know my heart. But what's your protection? What's your rescue? It's not the stuff. That's what Lot pursued, and, and, and it caused disaster in his life. This story is trying to help us understand what is written on our currency. You know what it is, right? Right on the back there, right there. In God we trust. Wasn't put on our paper money until 1957. But it's there as a reminder, I believe, by a godly man to help us remember this. I don't actually trust the dollar bill. I trust the God who our motto's phrase is on, our country's motto, in God we trust. Do you trust the dollar or do you trust the God who is your protector? This was such an important lesson for the original audience. Remember those people who are about ready to cross over the Jordan River and begin to do what God tells them to remove all of the people from that land? What would happen as they won those battles? They would have conquered the land and they would have gotten lots more stuff. And it would have been tempting for them to think, wow, God's blessing us with stuff and then worship stuff rather than the God who gives it to them. And God wants them not to trust and pursue stuff like Lot did. He wants us to trust the source like Abraham was. He wants us today to believe that God is our security and protection. We know this because this story in scene one helps us to see don't pursue stuff for security if it leads to compromise with wickedness. Jesus and his great sermon on the mount said it this way, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants your heart. The second scene, we see that we need to pursue kingdom values first. Not self-protection, but the rescue of others through the grace of God. That's why Jesus in that same sermon said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the stuff will be added to you that you need. My paraphrase. What he's saying here is trust the source, not the stuff. Because alliance with wickedness puts you in peril. You'll be tempted, you'll be tempted, you'll be tempted to trust possessions and stuff, but God is your protector. <laughs> so allegiance to the Most High God secures our protection. Notice how this phrase has been worded. Alliance. Alliance is a union formed for mutual benefit between peers. Don't make an alliance with wickedness. Don't become peers with wickedness. Instead, make an allegiance, a loyal commitment of sub from a subordinate to a superior. Make an allegiance to the Most High God for your protection. That's the echo of protection. What if we were a church that believed the echoes of protection? What if we believed that God sent Christ on a rescue mission? What if we believed that he rescues captives who have no way of saving themselves? 
and that those who were saved by grace are now going to be used by the protector for that rescue mission, you and I. What if we believe this, that God is our protector, that he is superior, and so we would worship him and take risks to bring back captives? What if we were a church that believed all we needed, all we needed, I don't need stuff, I just need the source, I just need Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the story that it tells Lord, would you plant deeply by the Holy Spirit what you are teaching us today? Lord, for those who have recognized they're squandering your protection, Lord, would you help them to bow their knee to you, to repent and put their trust in you? For you are a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you give forgiveness of sins. Lord, for those of us who have seen that, would you use us in your purpose to rescue others by grace? Would you help us to trust in the protector, not in anything else? Lord, would you allow us to recognize that we are full security comes from you? Lord, rip out anything that we would replace you with there and help our protector to truly be you. Lord, would you be our God? Would you give us these truths? Lord, we cry out to you and ask, give us Jesus. Amen.